Hi, you're tuning in to Rusty Thomas, where once a week he brings the brilliance of Scripture to every dynamic of life. For the last 40 years, Rusty has served the Lord as a father, minister, and political figure on the streets, churches, and capitals in our nation and abroad. You are going to hear compelling truths that will prayerfully build up your faith and equip you to meet the challenges of life with the confidence of God's Word. This is Kingdom Moments with my father, Rusty Thomas. Well, Merry Christmas, brothers and sisters. This is Rusty Thomas with Kingdom Moments, uh, praying that you're going to have a not only a Merry Christmas, but a blessed New Year in God's Kingdom. So, today, yes, another podcast. Um, praise be the Lord for this, uh, this effectual door to minister the gospel of the Kingdom. Uh, by God's grace, I hope to conclude uh, the message on the glorious incarnation. Um, so, before I begin, uh, my daughter Destiny asked if I would give an announcement. Uh, she just wants to let folks know that on our website, RustyThomas.org, which is the website for this podcast, we do have an event page form that you can fill out. Uh, if you want to invite our ministry into your church, conference, seminar, city, area, uh, we have different uh, ministry opportunities available. Uh, we have a youth rally that's available to kind of challenge and inspire and equip uh, young people to face the challenges of this generation and overcome uh, through the gospel of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And kind of use uh, our son Jeremiah's testimony, his short life and death, and how God used that uh, to touch the world, literally. So that's available. We have a three-day uh, men's conference. Uh, clearly, that's what the Spirit is speaking to the church today, that uh, men... Uh, you know, the sin from within, the moral compromise from within, you know, has hindered our ability to take responsibility in the Lord's kingdom. Uh, we're morally compromised, and so we don't stand up, we don't speak out, we don't fulfill our responsibility before the Lord. And so God's authority uh, through us in our home, uh, in the church, and in our communities are suffering you couple that with Jezebel, the feminist spirit, that man-hating spirit that's just pummeling us from without with this whole toxic masculinity business. Yeah, we're sort of up against it. And so uh, I offer the this men's conference to deal with those issues, to get back to the Lord, get back to the scriptures, and get back to our responsibility as men so that our families, the church, and our communities uh, can, you know, experience, you know, the Lord's blessing in those areas. Uh, besides that, we do have a workshop available where I can come in and minister uh, from our book, Biblical Strategies to Abolish Abortion. And so the purpose of the book and the workshop is to convince the church to no longer regulate baby murder, but actually rise up in Jesus' name to end the Holocaust once and for all. And so in the book, I lay out the biblical principles and truths that equip the church uh, to get this job done in Jesus' mighty name. And of course, if you just want me to come in to generally minister or speak at a church or conference or seminar, that's also available. So you can go to our website, RustyThomas.org, and fill out that event page, and just we'll work out a time and a date that we can, God willing, come and serve the Lord's purposes with you in your area. So that's the commercial. Now let's get down to kingdom business. Um, we did a, a first podcast on the glorious incarnation and kind of discuss that, you know, Christmas has become many things to many people uh, within the church, outside of the church. People are for it. They're against it. 
for for a variety of reasons, and I don't want to get into that again. But suffice it to say, for our purposes, I want to look at the birth of Christ from a biblical perspective and to lay out scripturally why uh, the birth of Christ is important, not just to us as individuals, but what it means to our poor, you know, our poor, fallen, dark world. And so we're going to begin today in the book of Genesis, and we're going to trace the glorious incarnation back to the book of Origins. And we're going to start with Genesis 3.15. Now, understand, uh, I normally preach and teach this passage of Scripture as it pertains to the battle. But now we're talking about Christmas. Now we're talking about the first advent of Jesus Christ. And here, in this passage of Scripture, the Lord lets us know uh, that He's coming, that he, he is the promised one, that God's going to raise up this champion, this deliverer, and he will be set into this fallen world as an instrument of redemption, as a person of salvation. And so this is what God promised. He said, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so we know from this passage of scripture that Satan had instigated the battle, but it's almighty God who is declaring war. And remember, one of the depictions of God is he is a man of war. And that is a part of his personality. Uh, the Bible says he has weapons. Uh, he will employ them uh, to take his enemies on and take them out. And that's clear uh, throughout the scriptures, both Old and New Testament. So again, you know, we I normally you know, demonstrate that this is a passage that not only shows there's a battle between the Lord and the evil one, Satan, the adversary, but it's also a battle that manifests um, in the realm of human seed, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Okay, so yes, it's, it, it first rages in the heavenlies, but it does manifest on the earth. And, you know, how do we understand, like, what camp are we in? Like, what's What's the distinguishing uh, marks of, let's say, the seed of the serpent? Well, you've heard it. You've heard the mantras. You heard the chants. You know, my rights, my body, my choice. I do what I want to do when I want to do it. And nobody's going to tell me what to do, not even Almighty God. And so the, the seed of the serpent has two commandments on which they hang all their wicked agenda. Uh, do what thou wilt and thou shalt not judge me. And of course, the seed of the woman has a whole different demeanor and attitude in this world. And the seed of the woman follows their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, not my will, but thine be done. And so, but again, I just want you to understand, this is the first mention of the glorious gospel of the kingdom and the incarnation. And so the first thing we must understand, in order for this universal promise to come to pass, that God is going to raise up a deliverer, a champion, and that he is going to make his salvation known, and that he is going to draw all nations to himself, and that through this seed line, he is going to bless all the families of the earth and all the nations of the earth. So as we move along in the book of Genesis, we find Abram, who eventually becomes Abraham. He's a father, but through the Lord, he's going to be the father of many nations and, by the way, the father of our faith. And so this is the book of Genesis, and here's God tapping Abraham. He says, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect, and I will make my covenant between me and thee 
and will multiply thee exceedingly. And there were many other promises that God had made to Abraham. You know, as they were struggling with time, you know, God gave this promise, and of course they had to wait a long time. And humanly speaking, they're losing the capacity for his promise to be fulfilled. And so on occasions, you know, God would show up to continue to encourage him and his wife, Sarah, that God's promises are yes and amen, and they will come to pass in God's time. And so then the question is, well, why did perhaps God choose Abraham? Well, first and foremost, God's the sovereign God, and he gets to choose whoever he wants to do what he wants them to do. And so there's that aspect of that. But also, I think Genesis 18:19 gives us some insight, humanly speaking, why perhaps God chose Abraham. So he says, for I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. So clearly God sees in Abraham this father's heart that wants to pass on the faith and the grit, uh, uh, you know, to his children, that, that Abraham has this multi-kingdom generational vision, and that he is serious for his children to obey the Lord, to do justice and judgment in the earth. And so Abraham is chosen. And again, the promise to Abraham that was through him and his seed, singular, speaking of the person of Jesus Christ, that he's going to bless all the families of the earth and all the nations of the earth. And so in order to fulfill this, again, God has to set up a seed line, a genealogy, and if you want to understand fully the purpose for the nation of Israel, it is to provide that seed line, the genealogy that the universal promise to the entire world would come to pass. And so be clear on this, brothers and sisters. Uh, there's a difference between the physical seed of Abraham and the promised seed of Abraham, because this brings a lot of confusion to the theology and doctrine of the church today, and it's a mess, because we don't understand biblically the difference between the children of the flesh and the children of the promise. And so here God taps Abraham and the promise of the deliverer goes from Abraham to Isaac. Now remember, you know, Abraham and Sarah, their faith and their bodies were beginning to fail them. And so they're wondering, will God's promise ever come to pass? And we, we know that they felt pressured to step in and try to help God fulfill his promise. And so Sarah has the, you know, dopey idea to, all right, Abraham, uh, you know, here's my maidservant, Hagar, you lie with her, and if God gives us a son through her, then the promise is fulfilled. And we know what a disaster that was when they ran ahead of the Lord. But understand, Ishmael is of the physical seed of Abraham but he's not the promised seed line. Critically important to discern this. And this passes from Isaac to Jacob. Now remember, Jacob was a twin with Esau. And as they're being born, he's grabbing the heel. He's the usurper, right? Uh, he's the younger, but he's going to rule over the elder, okay? So understand, now here's Esau and Jacob. Esau is of the lineage 
and of the seed of Abraham, but he's not of the promise seed line. Jacob is. And this is why when you come to the New Testament, there's such a battle between the physical seed of Abraham and the promised seed line. So remember, when when John the Baptist came on the scene and they're questioning him, are you the Christ? Are you the prophet? And he says, no, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then he says, when he sees Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the, the Jews, the leadership, the religious leaders are complaining about this you know, manifestation of Christ and his kingdom. And they said, you know, we're Abraham's children. Uh, you know, what are you talking about? And um, he said, don't give me your Abraham's children, your Abraham's seed. God is able of these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Uh, you better repent and put your faith in trust in this lamb who has come to take away the sin of the world. And of course, Christ himself had that confrontation well, with the religious leaders of Judaism, where they kept saying, no, 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 you're crazy. We're, we're Abraham's seed and, 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 and on and on and on, you know, claiming this, this part, this place that they have in God's covenant and his kingdom. And, 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 and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Because if you were Abraham's seed, if you were Abraham's children, you wouldn't want to kill me. No, your father's not Abraham. Your father is the devil and his works you will do. He was a liar and he was a murderer from the beginning. And this is why the apostle Paul says not all Israel is Israel. He said the children of flesh, these are not the children of God but the children of the promise. These are the children of God. He said the true Jew is not the circumcision of the flesh. The true Jew is the circumcision of the heart. And then he says in Galatians, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, I got to tell you, the church has this all goofed up, and this is why we got all this crazy theology and doctrine that has been such a disaster uh, to the church in this world. Well, God gives this universal promise. It's going from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And then, of course, Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I want you to notice how the scriptures through redemptive history, it starts with a universal promise, but it's going to get narrower and narrower till we get to the promise being born into this world. And so out of the 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah was chosen. And we find this in Genesis 49.10. The scripture says, the scepter, obviously that's the rod of rulership, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Uh, that's the Messiah, until Messiah comes. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. We know from the scriptures that our Lord and Savior came out of the tribe of Judah. But then, as redemptive history moves forward, it's going to get even more narrower. Because out of the tribe of Judah, a house, a family will be chosen. And we find this in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. And this is God Almighty speaking to the poet, warrior, statement, statesman, uh, King David. And he says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed, again singular, not seeds, many, 
many, meaning the nation of Israel, seed, singular, speaking of Jesus Christ, after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So just a little recap here, brothers and sisters. Universal promise, okay? I'm going to raise up deliverer, all right? The first announcement of the gospel of the kingdom, right? And then he taps Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The seed line is getting very specific. The genealogy is very specific. It becomes narrower and narrower and narrower until finally we have this announcement in the book of Galatians. The Apostle Paul says this, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So, critically important, brothers and sisters, we get this seed line, this genealogy right. Like, there is an important purpose, like in the Gospel of Matthew, why the Jewish writer went to such lengths to lay out the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Most of us, we read through that, we don't want to pronounce the names, we think, what a waste of time, why? You know, get me to the rich parts, get me to the glorious parts, you know, get me to the miracles, get me to the promises of how much God loves me, and things of this nature. But those genealogies are critically important. It's showing the integrity of God's word and his promises and his predictions, how and when they come to pass. It's very detailed. So now the question is, what does this mean that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son? What does that mean to us as individuals? What does it mean to this world, to this planet, as it pertains to our future? Well, there's a great Christmas passage that we normally give and receive, you know, Christmas cards. This typically is one of the main passages, you know, when we mail things at Christmas time. And uh, this passage is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. I love this passage of Scripture. It comes from the prophet Isaiah. And the book of Isaiah is incredible to me on, on many levels. But you need to know in history that Isaiah's prophecies and predictions of Christ the Messiah is so accurate, so incredibly detailed, that historians and scholars thought what really happened was Christ came, he did what he did, and then somebody went back and came up with the book of Isaiah to pretend that this was prophecy and prediction. Well, thank the Lord for the Dead Sea Scrolls, because they found the entire book of Isaiah intact 200 years after Isaiah wrote the book of, you know, Isaiah, and 500 years before Christ was born. So God, in his way, not only gives his word, uh, he protects his word. And so praise be to God. So here's the passage of Scripture. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Pay close attention. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government. Yeah, all governments. You know, family government, church government, civil government, that leads to self-government, all upon the shoulders of this child, this son. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. Hmm. A child 
a son that's human. He's called mighty God. Oh, that's strange, Isaiah. You're a monotheistic Jew. What are you talking about? The everlasting father, the prince of peace. Listen, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice. What did we hear about Abraham and his kids where God said, look up into the sky and count the stars and go to the sea and count the granule of sand? Well, what, what was he going to do with his kids? Well, he was going to teach them the faith. He was going to make sure they performed justice and judgment in the earth. Oh, and so this son, this, this child that's going to be born, what is he going to do? He's going to establish judgment with justice. Listen, from henceforth, even forever. Well, how in the world is this going to happen? I mean, look at the world. It's out of control. You know, there is corruption. There is tyranny. You know, there's gazillionaires with messianic impulses. They're trying to destabilize, depopulate the earth. You know, what is this stuff about God setting up his kingdom and his government? How in the world is this going to take place? Well, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, remember, one of the markings of Christ when he was upon the earth, when he's going into the temple and driving out the money changers and saying, hey, you know, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And he's turning over money changers, tables, and whipping people. Get out of my house. Um, the Bible says the reason why he did that was the zeal of the Lord of hosts consumed him. That's how this is going to be accomplished. So, but what is the biblical implication of this passage? Because the big question for a lot of questions... Uh, Christians is not if the kingdom, but when the kingdom. Most Christians believe in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And that is good. That is a promise. That is a prediction. But the issue is when in time and history does it come? Well, when you read this passage of scripture, when does God set up his government? And it's clear. When what? The holy child is born and the son is given. So understand this. When Christ came, he didn't just come to start a church age and reveal salvation to the earth. He came with his kingdom. And we know biblically from the book of Daniel and other sources that once his kingdom begins, it is destined to conquer all the kingdoms of men. And his kingdom will be established, and it will never be destroyed. And again, how is this going to happen? We got to double down on a human level to make this happen. The Bible does not say that. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And we can trust that what God says will come to pass in his way and in his time. And so now we're going to look at Christmas from the New Testament, and we're going to look at the account in the gospel according to Luke. Pay close attention to this, because this not only has implications for us on an individual basis when it comes to our personal salvation, but it's going to demonstrate that the Isaiah passage that promises these things, that is the exact message that Gabriel is bringing to Mary. Listen. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. 
And by the way, the name Jesus is God shall save his people from their sins. Hallelujah. He shall be great. Amen. And shall be called the son of the highest. Now here is where he quotes from the passage of Isaiah. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. Now listen, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost, and this is just my addition, bless his holy name, shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So there is a lot in this passage of Scripture. Again, that relates to us on a personal level and then as a corporate level concerning the future of this world. So I have a question for you. How did Mary conceive Christ physically when Gabriel brings her this announcement? I want you to listen very carefully to this. After Gabriel lays out God's plan and ministers the passage of Isaiah to Mary, now obviously she's fearful, she has questions, she's struggling, she's a virgin. And I don't know if she knew the passage in Isaiah that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. I'm not sure she knew all that. She may have. But she is certainly a virgin, and she's very young. And Gabriel is laying a heavy-duty revelation upon her young soul. Now, I want you to listen how she responds. Eventually, this is how she responds. Behold, the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me, listen, according to your word. And I truly believe, brothers and sisters, once she came into agreement and said yes and amen to the Lord's dealings and will in her life, I believe that's when the kenosis took place, where Christ, God the Son, forever with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, is emptied from heaven and becomes the seed, the promised seed, into the womb of Mary. And he becomes that, you know, that zygote, the embryo, and that baby developing in the womb that's eventually born in the assigned city, Bethlehem, and born in a manger. So that's how Christ was physically conceived. And understand, uh, his, his reality in this earth did not begin when he was born of a virgin but when he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and that is kenosis. And this is how Mary receives Christ into her life, physically in the womb. So this is the Apostle Peter. And I want you to listen carefully to his words, because in some way, in like manner, when we, as men, women, and children, when we hear the gospel message and we're convicted by the Holy Spirit, in a sense, when we say, be it unto us according to thy word, what happens? You know, Christ, by the Holy Spirit, regenerates us and we receive Christ into our life. Christ in us, the hope of glory, where we don't just go to church, we become church, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the Apostle Paul. He says, being born again, not of corruptible seed, 
That's why it had to be a virgin. And that's why it could never be a human man that would produce the promise, the champion, the deliverer, the Messiah. No, it had to be the God-man. That's why Mary had to conceive by the Holy Spirit. Because men lying with women produces a corruptible seed, original sin. But he's saying we are born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. Listen, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. The apostle James concurs. He says this, wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word, the word, the word that God spoke the worlds into existence, the creator of the heaven and the earth, right? Um, the word that's been canonized in the 66 books of the Bible, which is not just black ink on a white page. The Bible says of Jesus that his words are spirit and they are life. It's alive. It's full of power. And he says that word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, all right? He says, receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. That's James 1.21. The apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3.15 continues, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, amen and amen. So, brothers and sisters, understand the implication of why each year we celebrate the birth of Christ. It has enormous implications for us when it comes to our personal salvation, because our personal salvation solves two critically important issues that we all face. Why are we here? You know, is this a cruel joke? Is this some cosmic accident? You know, what is the purpose for all the blood, sweat, and tears? What's all the purpose for our suffering, our disappointments, our hurts, our sickness, our disease, our death? Is there any rhyme or reason to this? Well, once the relationship between the Creator and us that was broken by our sin, once we partake of Christ's salvation and redemption, we have a sense of who we are in this world. You know, we, we have an understanding of our destiny, our purpose in life. That is huge. That brings great peace to our soul in the midst of confusion and wandering in this world with no rhyme or reason, no purpose, no destiny, just having life bounce you all around, and eventually you die and you go to hell, which brings up the second most in critically important. I mean, there's a huge issue we struggle with. It's called death, and the Bible calls it an enemy. And we know from scriptures that Satan uses death to torment us. It's the fear of the unknown. And so once we repent and put our faith and trust in Christ, and God's word, that incorruptible seed, goes to work in our hearts. And the Spirit of God regenerates us. We know that once we cross that line and step into eternity, we're not going to hell. Praise be to God. We're going to be with our Lord forever and ever. And the Bible tells us that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered the heart of man what God has stored up for them that love him. We know there's a place where there's no more sin, there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's no more tears. And so Christ coming into this earth, Christ being born, and because of that, we become born again. It settles our purpose here on earth, and it settles our eternal standing. Both bring incredible peace to our souls, regardless of of what we go through on this earth. Well, I want to conclude just a couple of more truths 
about the birth of Christ. Um, we know uh, from Scripture that the evil one, Satan, was very much concerned about this child that was to be born, this son who was to be given. And so we, we find this recorded in Revelations 12, 3 and 4. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now listen. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child, capital C, as soon as it was born. So we know this evil one who has to come to kill, steal, and destroy. Why is he concerned about this specific child? Why is he concerned about this son? Well, Revelations 12.5 gives us the answer. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now again, when does Christ's kingdom come? When does he establish his government where his government peace shall have no end? When does that take place? When the child is born. The enemy understood its implications. So for him, it was either murder the child or be dispossessed in time in history. And we know on the human level, the enemy was working through Herod to go after Jesus Christ. For as far as Herod was concerned, better the innocent are slain that in his mind, the guilty party escape. And so we, we have to include, as we celebrate Christmas, the massacre of the innocent. You remember that time where, you know, Herod is asking the sages, the wise men, the prophets, you know, what's the timing of the Messiah's birth? Where is he going to be born? He's making inquisition not so he can worship him like the wise men from the East, the pagans, the Gentiles. No, he wants to know so he can wipe him out. And so we know in the Gospels how he sent forth his soldiers and they invaded Bethlehem and every son, two years and older, were massacred. Now, obviously, you know, we, when we celebrate Christmas, it's a time of joy and family and fellowship and giving. But brothers and sisters, we also understand uh, that there still is this battle, you know, that rages. And so to this day, we know the enemy and that spirit of Herod still exists in the world, except the enemy is not just waiting for the child to be born. No, he's going into that sacred matrix, into the womb uh, to devour the preborn were made in the image and likeness of God. And the only thing I can tell you along those lines, the same God that rescued Jesus by awakening Joseph in dreams and saying, get up, depart, the child's in danger, go to Egypt, stay there for a while, I'll call you when it's safe to come back. And he did. Well, that same Lord came, he was promised, he was born, uh, he lived, he ministered, uh, he was crucified. Uh, three days later, he rose from the dead and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting henceforth to all his enemies are made his footstool. And that includes abortion. There is victory in Jesus Christ our Lord. Do not grow weary in well-doing, for we shall get rewarded if we faint not. Amen. So the last thing I want to say along these lines, uh, when it comes to the Christ, Christmas narrative, you got to remember there was no room for him in the inn. And there's a lot to that, brothers and sisters. We, I don't have the time to go all through it. But I do think it's important to understand, just like there was no room for him in the inn, for most of us on this planet, there's no room for Christ in our life. We just have this natural repulsion against Christ. 
everybody can be God, you know, everybody can have deity except the one true and living God, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So naturally speaking, as human beings, you know, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You know, we reject the light, we walk in darkness. And why do we do that? Because we don't want our evil deeds to be exposed. Scripture says we go astray from the womb because we're conceived in sin. We're born alienated from God and we seek to be a law and a God unto ourselves. And, and I just want to make mention to this. this. The Bible makes it clear there's no such thing as an atheist or an agnostic. The problem is it's not that we don't know God exists. We, we know he exists. You know, there's creation, there's laws written on our heart. We have a conscience. We know he exists. The problem is we just love our sin more than we love God. And so for many, yeah, there's no room in our wicked hearts for Christ. But I think it's amazing because, you know, there's no room for him in the inn. So where does he find a place to be born? Where does he find a place, you know, to find some shelter as he's coming into this world? Remember, we're talking about the king of glory, the creator of the heavens and the earth becoming one of us. And where does he chose to be born in a cave? to be lying in a feeding trough for animals, the manger? I mean, that says so, it, it reveals so much about the character of our Lord. Look how humbly he comes into this world. And he, he manifests that humility throughout his life and ministry. It's, it's an amazing thing, all right? But in a sense, that's what we're like before we're born again. We're in this dark cave. You know, our life, our thinking, our behavior, it's like a stinking stable, right? And when we humble ourselves, when we repent, when we seek God for forgiveness, you know what happens? The King of glory, right? The promised one, the deliverer, invades our darkness, and takes our hearts, our souls that are just literally stinking, rotten, filthy stables. And he regenerates us. He cleanses us. He purifies us with his precious blood, the truth of his word, and the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, lastly, I'm going to conclude with this. I find it outstanding, amazing that... Out of all the people in Israel at that time, it is to lowly shepherds who are on the low totem pole as far as status in the community. These people were pretty isolated, pretty alone. They were not wealthy people. They were not men of means or influence. They're just lowly shepherds. And out of all the people in all the world, to have this outstanding manifestation take place, it blows the mind. So here's the announcement. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Remember the promise in Genesis 3.15? Remember the promise to Abraham and his seed? I'm going to bless all the families of the earth all the nations of the earth, this is for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now watch this. Again, people don't think Christmas is a big deal. I don't remember anything even closely, remotely happening in the world than what happens on this day. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God. Could you imagine the sky opening up, this heavenly choir, lowly angels on the mountainside, cold, freezing, isolated, alienated, and then the sky opens up they hear the announcement of the angel, and then this heavenly choir begins to belt out the praise 
to the Lord, saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, good will toward men. Wow. Christmas is not a big deal. Christmas is not something we should celebrate as believers. Are you kidding me? How important is the incarnation when it comes to personally and this world? But I'm going to tell you something. Just like in the Lord's resurrection, you know, we do have the account that, you know, there was eyewitnesses that saw him, that touched him after he was raised from the dead. But it always puzzled me. Why did not the Lord, after he was raised from the dead, why didn't he appear to Pilate? Why didn't he appear to Caesar? Why didn't he appear to the high priest? You know, he could have done that. He could have went to them just like Thomas and said, touch me and stop the nonsense, stop the foolishness, stop the unbelief. He could have, do, he could have done that. But he chose to appear before his rough and, you know, not so sophisticated d disciples. And so we see this same thing in his birth. He's not appearing to Herod. He's not appearing to the high priest of the day. He's not appearing to the religious leaders of the day. It's lowly shepherds. And I believe, brothers and sisters, that kind of reveals our calling as Christians. You know, the Apostle Paul declares, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. Wow. Praise God. So, brothers and sisters, there's much more that can be said about the glorious incarnation, but for time's sake, I think it's time to end this podcast. I do, uh, with the hopes of not a Bending anybody. I do really want to miss you from my heart, uh, wish you from my heart a Merry Christmas and a blessed New Year in God's kingdom. Until next time, brothers and sisters, keep pressing on to that high calling prize. In Jesus' name, amen.